Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today, as usual, by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, it's been quite an exciting week for the domestic audience anyway, with the interminable Brexit process continuing to be extended beyond every deadline that's been set so far. And we still don't know as of this moment what exactly the outcome is going to be. But has that had any impact on the market this week, Simon? Tell us what's been going on there. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say it has been a more tricky week for the market. Certainly in the UK, the FTSE All Share We'll probably end up the week down about 1% or so, not too far off that. Uh, and investment companies have underperformed again, so they will finish in negative territory, probably down about 1%, 1.5%. So certainly a trickier week. You can see um, investor sentiment has just wavered a little bit in terms of the sector average discount. We talked in recent weeks about how that had narrowed in. Uh, well, it's gone in reverse this week. So it probably started the week about 2.7% and ended uh, wider than a four. So not a big derating. It's probably not worth uh, overstating that, but certainly a little bit of weakness in terms of demand. I think it's fair to make the point that uh, the investment trust sector overall, on average, has had a very good year, as we know, and has outperformed the FTSE almost every month for several months. So it would be not a total surprise if it underperformed one month out of 12 or two months out of 12 or whatever the number is. Uh, I've just been looking through the list of top and bottom performers this week. In terms of NAVs, uh, it's noticeable that in the list of those which have uh, seen NAV declines, uh, a number of the mid and small cap UK trusts have featured. They've obviously had a very uh, strong recovery in the last few weeks, but they've sold off by 2 or 3% this week. Uh, names such as JP Morgan Midcap, Aberforth Mercantile, those sort of things, uh, Schroeder UK Midcap. Uh, and I guess that can be attributed to the uh, perhaps the renewed uh, bit of nervousness about the Brexit negotiations apparently not possibly leading to a deal. Well, we may or may not find out about that next week. You never know with these things. But let's move on and talk about corporate activity. Let's start with uh, perhaps the biggest news of the week on the corporate front, which is the news about Keystone Investment Trust, ticker KIT. Can you tell us what the news there is, uh, Simon? It's another management change, I, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So Keystone Investment Trust uh, had been part of the Invesco stable, uh, managed by a chap called James Goldstone, so a portfolio of UK equities. Uh, but uh, this week, the board have announced that after a, a review, they have decided to appoint Bailey Gifford as their manager and adopt a positive change investment strategy. Uh, and as I said, that follows a, a strategic review and a competitive tender process. It will take a, a month or two to see the, the change made, and it will require shareholder approval before that happens. So they're talking about maybe after the AGM uh, in February next year. But the idea is that the portfolio will consist of between about 30 and 60 global equities, both public and private. You'll have the ability to uh, invest in unquoted companies. It'll go down the, the market cap scale, probably down to about half a billion US dollars or so. Um, it'll be managed by Kate Fox and Lee Kuang of uh, Bailey Gifford. And they have built a decent track record on an, an equivalent open-ended fund, which they've been running since 2017. So an interesting proposal uh, we haven't seen an, an investment trust company managed on these lines uh, to date, but it's certainly uh, an area of, of the market that I think that is generating some interest at the moment. What is the difference going to be between uh, this Bailey Gifford Investment Trust and others that it manages with a global mandate? How do how are they differentiating it, uh, if indeed at all, from uh, from other of their global 
investment trusts? I think it will be quite different, not least because the starting point um, is that assuming shareholder approval is forthcoming, it'll be the only Bailey Gifford uh, investment trust that has a dual objective. So it's not just uh, about the financial returns, but it's, and this is written into the investment objective, it'll be about the positive impact that uh, the, the, the investment has on society overall. So, you know, it will be differentiated in that respect. There will be some uh, crossover uh, with some of the existing Bailey Gifford Investment Trust, um, and they put some data out on that basis. I think it's something between 20 and 25% of uh, Scottish Mortgage Trust, for instance, that it will have in, in common. But I think the idea is uh, over time, particularly with the ability to invest in some of the unquoted, um, the private companies, uh, that it will kind of differentiate itself further. But it's it's certainly a very interesting investment approach. As I say, a very different starting point that you would normally find for a kind of global equity portfolio. Yeah, so they seem to be keen to tap into this drive towards um, positive change, social impact investing. That's obviously uh, very much a flavour of the day. And they seem to have gone for that, of course. But they're also in the process, they are uh, switching from a UK to a global strategy. And this at a time when we've... Uh, as we've noticed many times, the UK has never been more unloved as a market than it is at the moment. So there's potentially, subject to events, of course, there is some value in the UK market, you'd have to think at some point. Uh, but they've taken the decision to go global. Again, I guess we keep on saying this, whenever you make a change like this as a board of directors, uh, it's what uh, Sir Humphrey would call a brave decision, because you are <laughs> you're liable to be uh, proved wrong by events, if uh, and then people will say you've been a bit foolish. Uh, but what are, what are your thoughts about this particular change? Did it come as a surprise to you? And how do you think it'll be taken by the market? It's a good point. I mean, a couple of points to make. So it's within a board's remit, as you know, to appoint a different manager. They don't need to seek shareholder approval in order to do that. But what they do absolutely have to do, if they change the investment strategy, so for in, in this instance, they're moving from a UK equities to a global, more social impact type strategy, they have to get shareholder approval to do that. Um, so that will obviously take a little bit of time, but that should be in place by February, as mentioned. But the move from uh, the UK to global, the board did comment that they saw um, a kind of dearth of opportunity or certainly growth opportunities in the UK marketplace. And in fact, when they uh, had this strategic review, it was their kind of their starting point. You know, did they want to continue with this investment trust uh, looking at UK equities? And obviously the decision was no, they wanted to move it on. Uh, and as you say, we'll, we'll find out in time whether that's the right call or not. If we can take the, the market's reaction as any indication, Keystone has been uh, re-rated on the back of it. It's fair to say that it had been a bit of a laggard. In the last 12 months, it's been trading out on average about a 15% discount. Uh, so that's wider than probably most uh, mainstream UK uh, or investment trust focus on the UK market. Uh, and it's now come into about a 3 or 4% discount. The board haven't put a, a tender offer on the table at the moment. That is different to what we saw uh, with the Bailey Gifford when they picked up the China mandate, so the Whitton Pacific Fund and also the European mandate from the uh, the investment trust, formerly European Investment Trust. That's not to say that there won't be a discount control mechanism and they've made it clear that they will have discussions with shareholders. But I think ordinarily you would expect some kind of liquidity event, particularly when you are changing a mandate from, say, UK equities into global equities or, or a distinct change. Yeah, so you'd want the, to give those who uh, invested in it because it was a UK equity trust to have the opportunity to get out if they don't want to change into a global mandate, as you say. Uh, I noticed they've also put out the annual results. Can we find anything in the annual results that tells us why the board has decided to uh, to act in this way? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, they the, had the annual results up to the end of September. It was an under outperformance, I beg your pardon, in that period. And then the total return, it was down. It was down about 15%. Um, that compared with 17% for the FTSE All Shares. So uh, to be fair to James Goldstone, in that particular period, he, he did generate some outperformance. Though in terms of the, the dividend, which is not an unimportant part, or has been historically of the Keystone story, though it won't be going forward, the, the, the dividend will be reduced going forward. But in terms of the revenue per share, it was down 33%. And I think, you know, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about some of the other investment trust focus on the UK market is still a very difficult backdrop in terms of generating dividends from the underlying portfolio. So I think since James took on this mandate, which off, off the top of my head, I think it was about 2017 or so, it had been a poor performer. He kind of stabilised its performance record. But during that period, I think it's still underperformed against the all share. Yeah, so they've taken the decision that may, as you say, have implications for the uh, the dividend as well, which is... Uh... Again, another brave decision to take. What's been the performance of Keystone over, over time? Can you tell us and how does it compare? It's in the UK all companies sector. How has its performance been over, over slightly longer periods? So if you look at it over, say, five years, it's the weakest reformer in any of the total return terms. It's up 5% over that period, five years. That compares with 33% for the FTSE all share. Um, and certainly the average for its peer group would be, you know, in line with the Australian 33. So it has been a, a laggard. And equally, if you can compare it against the UK equity income space, which many people did, given the way that the portfolio was run, it would be certainly towards the bottom of the pack. So not a sparkling performance record. And that's in common with how those uh, Invesco mandates uh, had performed in recent years. I think we talked recently about Invesco income growth. Uh, and we've also talked in the past about perpetual income and growth and Edinburgh Investment Trust. So in terms of the Invesco stable, just every year ago, they were responsible for six UK-focused investment trusts uh, with an aggregate of about £3 billion worth of assets. And in the not-too-distant future, that number will be down to two and probably about £300-plus million in total. So quite a, a loss in terms of assets under management for Invesco in the UK space. Indeed, they've had a very poor run. And as we said, they, we've also talked about last week about the the merger of two of their investment trusts. So another company which has been having some difficulties in the investment trust space and which also uh, is in the corporate news this week is one, again, that I know something about. This is Jupiter. The Jupiter US Smaller Companies Trust have also decided to change their manager. What's the story there? Yeah, so just to remind people, um, it was announced early in the year that the, the long-standing uh, manager, Robert Siddles, had decided to retire by April next year. So for family reasons, he'd been the manager for the best part of about 20 years on this particular investment trust. So that kind of set the process rolling. The board had a, a review and they announced this week that they've decided to appoint Brown Advisory uh, as an investment manager. And um, Brown Advisory, probably not that well known in the UK marketplace, um, but I think we talked about them recently, actually, in terms of Jupiter UK growth. But they're an American specialist house. They're responsible for about £100 billion of assets under management, so quite a substantial player. And this will be, it will retain its US small cap strategy, it will have a growth tack, and it'll be managed by a chap called Christopher Berrier, who um, is an experienced uh, investor based in Baltimore. And that this strategy has a very much a kind of bottom-up fundamental growth focus. So I guess the board will be hoping that it will kind of reinvigorate the investment trust and, and see it re-rated in time. So, uh, as you say, uh, Brown Advisory, they, they happen to be the rollover option. That particular global fund they have is a, one we was chosen by the board of uh, Jupiter UK Growth as the rollover option. And I'm a non-exec director of that trust. And needless to say, we had absolutely no idea that this was going on at the same time. 
different brokers, different companies, and I'm glad to say that all the uh, appropriate uh, Chinese walls are observed there. I had actually no idea this was also going to happen almost uh, just within a couple of weeks or so. So Jupiter have been in the wars on the investment trust front. I mean, what's uh, stable look like now? Well, it's uh, it's a lot smaller than it was at the start of the year. I mean, the, the big loss last year, in fact, was when Jupiter European Opportunities, now European Opportunities, left the stable, and that was their flagship fund. Uh, obviously, as just discussed, Jupiter UK Growth and now Jupiter US Smaller Companies will be marching on. So that leaves, I'm going to say about two or three investment trusts off the top of my head uh, left in their stable. So it isn't a big part of Jupiter's book anymore. Indeed, it is not. Uh, so they'll have to rebuild that. They do have, of course, they have taken over Merion and they have Merion Chrysalis or now Chrysalis, I think it's going to be called. Uh, and I think they still have a Frontiers Trust and uh, the Jupiter Green is in their stable. But it's a pretty small set of assets altogether, apart from uh, Mary and Chrysalis, which has done very well and which they acquired. Let's move on to another interesting story. This is uh, slightly different from the normal corporate story we talk about. And this is uh, what's been happening with the Tritax Big Box and Tritax Euro Box. These are two... Uh, essentially warehouse and logistics uh, property companies that have done extremely well in raising a lot of money over the last uh, few years. What's the story here? Yeah, so this week we learnt that Aberdeen Standard Investments have plans to acquire a 60% ownership interest in Tritax Management, uh, which is the investment manager of uh, Tritax Big Box REIT and Tritax Eurobox. So this is part of Aberdeen Standard Investments' increased focus on logistics the deal is expected to close in early 2021. In terms of the actual investment companies, the aforementioned companies, it won't have any kind of direct impact on a day-to-day basis. And in fact, the boards, the respective boards, believe that the, the strength of Aberdeen's standards investment will, will actually improve the strength of the Tritax management team, uh, though which will remain unchanged and retain its autonomy. So um, it seems to be a positive deal, and no doubt the team at Tritax Management will be quite delighted and excited by it. Indeed, they've obviously reached a point where they can uh, perhaps monetize some of their interest in the management company, which has done very well in launching these uh, these two investment trusts. Uh, has this news had any impact on the ratings of any of the three investment trusts involved? No, well, I mean, they're all already reasonably well rated, or some of the best rated investment companies in that property space. So Tritax Big Box, for instance, is trading on about a 5% premium. It's averaged about a 2% discount over the last 12 months. Um, in terms of Tritax Eurobox, um, that's on a small discount at the moment, probably about 1% or 2% discount, though it has averaged a 10% discount over the previous 12 months. And likewise, the Aberdeen Standard European Logistics, which is in the same peer group as Tritax Eurobox, that's trading on a premium as well, 4% premium. So I think the market has, has taken this news in its stride. What's the combined total of assets that Tritax uh, have now in those two trusts? Uh, roughly, well, obviously, one is European in euros, and one is in sterling. What's the rough size of that uh, combined group? So the Tritax uh, big box is is the larger fund. I mean, in market cap terms, that and the Eurobox fund uh, are probably about three billion. In in terms of assets, it will be larger because obviously there's gearing involved. So you're probably talking three and a half, four billion in terms of assets on a geared basis. Well, that will be one to watch to see whether that has any impact on the way that uh, either any of those trusts behave or their, their ambitions. It'll be interesting to see. 
We've quickly got to mention, I'm afraid, uh, another investment trust, corporate activity, but I think we can be brief about this one because it's another sort of standoff, I think. This is Gabelli Value Plus Plus, our old friends down at the OK Corral, GVP. Uh, just give us a quick update on this uh, ongoing. This is almost worse than the Brexit saga. It has dragged on. It really has dragged on. Well, we have the general meeting this week at which the um, proposals from Associate Capital Group, uh, who are the largest shareholder and affiliate of the manager, um, they put forward some proposals and the board objected to them and as did the majority of shareholders. They were voted down. So where we are now in the standoff is the board will look to put forward liquidation proposals which Associated Capital Group have said they will vote against. And the board have said, well, if that duly comes to pass, they will propose a substantial capital return, probably by way of a tender offer. So this one rumbles on. So presumably the board are getting pretty fed up with this. Is a tender offer, is that likely to be the kind of the nuclear option that is actually going to result in this thing being sorted out? Or are we just going to go on negotiating like uh, the UK and EU until the last minute? I mean, I think the, the majority of shareholders, aside from Associated Capital Group, would just like to get their money out of this and then walk away. I mean, the tender offer is a way of taking some of the money off the table, but there, there is um, potentially a danger that you kind of end up getting trapped uh, with the remnant. And particularly if Associated Capital Group already own, uh, whatever it is, 27% or so of the share register, if they don't tender, then their proportion grows. And therefore, assuming they get a waiver from the panel, so they, they're not forced to make a takeover bid, then they might have uh, been a more, even more powerful position. So it's not entirely straightforward, to be honest. Yeah, so they could even end up with effective control in some form, by it, which would be, uh, uh, well, perhaps that's what they have in mind. Who knows? We'll find out as this saga drags on. Uh, OK, so let's move on to fundraising. There is been some news this week on fundraising. The, the fundraising spurt that we've seen since the uh, third quarter as continues. Let's start with Greencoat Renewables. What have they done this week? So Greencoat Renewables announced that they'd raised 125 million euros, and that was uh, another oversubscribed placing in the renewable infrastructure subsector. Um, they placed those shares out at one euro thirteen, and in fact, actually, since then it's traded better. It's up to about one euro sixteen. So a decent fundraise for them. They're going to use the net proceeds to refinance their credit facility, which is well trodden ground in this subsector. Uh, and they're also going to take advantage of uh, a pipeline of opportunity, which they say is in excess of 500 million euros in Ireland and other European countries. So as you said, the renewable sector has been very busy in terms of uh, raising capital. Let's talk about JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets. That's J-A-R-A, something we talked about not so long ago. What are their plans on the fundraising front? I think when we last talked about it, we, we mentioned the fact they're looking to launch or issue a C-share uh, to raise additional capital. That was meant to close this week, actually, on the 9th of December. Uh, though what, in fact, has happened, they've extended out the, the timetable. This is because there are a number of institutional investors who apparently are interested uh, and they want to allow them more time to complete their due diligence. Um, they haven't issued a revised timetable, though one would assume they'd like to get this done before Christmas. Just remind us quickly what a C-share is, how that differs from a placing. So the C-share, it would be a separate share class. Normally, and I'm assuming in this case, it'd be issued at 100p per share. And effectively, it creates a separate pool. And what it allows, it allows that, that pool to be invested over time without providing a cash drag on the ordinary share class and the assets attached to that. When it is fully invested or 80% or somewhere around there, it gets converted into the ordinary share class. So you have the two, two portfolios merged. 
Yes, that's a, an example of that has been, happened with uh, hypnosis. Uh, they did a C-share issue earlier, and that is uh, either about or has just uh, been consolidated. Uh, and that brings us on nicely to Round Hill Music Royalty Fund, which is the relative newcomer in this uh, interesting new asset class of music royalties. They are proposing to do some more fundraising, are they not? They are, yes. Um, despite having only IPO'd relatively recently, what they've announced is that they're looking to issue new shares under a placing program at one dollar, one US dollar, and one cent, uh, and the net proceeds would be used to acquire some or all of the balance of initial pipeline investments. So, just to be very clear on this, um, they had an initial portfolio lined up at launch, which was valued at three hundred and sixty million US dollars. They raised two hundred and eighty-two million, so a little bit less than what they wanted, ideally. And even um, though they can actually get up to about 25%, it leaves them a little bit short. So effectively, they're trying to uh, bridge the balance to enable them to take um, advantage of that initial pipeline. So we'll find out how that goes next week. The placing closes on the 15th of December with dealings in the new shares from the 18th. So those last two uh, proposed fundraisings or extensions and a secondary issue, if you like, do you get a sense that this is going to be the end of the... uh... The fundraising for the end of the year, or are we going to see something else come out next week? I mean, is it uh, that we talked about the pipeline before? It's coming to the end of the year. Everybody wants to get their bonuses for pulling off another deal. What's uh, what, <laughs> and why not? And what's the uh, what's your sense of where we are in this uh, kind of fundraising cycle? Well, I, I mean, clearly we're running out of time as far as this year is is concerned. If if deals are going to be done before Christmas, really, it feels like it's got to be kind of done next week. Uh, so time is limited. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world as discussed. So it is a little bit of a tricky period uh, to get stuff done. And there doesn't seem to be a shortage of paper out there at the moment. Okay, so let's move on to some results, shall we? We talked about um, Bailey Gifford before and its global mandate, but the uh, social impact mandate, if you like. We had results, annual results out from Edinburgh Worldwide, which uh, to close in interest, I have some shares in this one. I'm Happy to say they've had a very good year. You've done very well. Yeah, they had their annual results out for the year to the end of October. And in that period, their NAV total return was up uh, 58%. And that compares with just 0.4% for the S&P Global Small Cap Index. Uh, Share price times even better. Share price total return up about 64%. So a very, very strong year for this one. Douglas Brody, the manager leading the investment team. Um, so obviously they back growth companies, but further down the market cap scale than, than some of their stable mates. So in terms of the, the companies that perform well for them, it's names that we'll be familiar with, Tesla, Ocado, uh, and then Teladoc and Chegg, an online education company, did very well. But uh, portfolio turnover very low in this year, about 8%. So it is really about long-term holdings. And they haven't used gearing. Their net gearing was equivalent to about 1% at the end of the period. They also have a few uh, investments, so in fact, nine to be precise, in unlisted investments, and that represented about 6% at the end of October. So taking advantage of the, of the closed-ending fund structures to back uh, private companies. Well, it has been a remarkable year for Bailey Gifford, as we've noted many times. They, as we just discussed, they picked up another mandate uh, with Keystone this week, and uh, they've launched a number of new trusts as well over the last couple of years. Uh, and Edinburgh Worldwide doesn't even have bragging rights within the stable. I mean, it's uh, compared to Scottish Mortgage and uh, I don't know how it compares to Monks, but in the global sort of space, they uh, haven't done as well, I have to say. But 60% is normally enough for mere mortals uh, in a year. So we'd have to give them credit for that. They're obviously on a roll, Bailey Gifford. 
as we've said. Now, what about the next one? The end results from Majedi, which uh, recently was given uh, an investment trust mandate. Can you tell us the performance of the Majedi Investments Investment Trust? So Majedi Investments had their annual results out to the end of September. A bit of a tricky period, this one. So their NAV total return was down about 12%. Uh, and that compared with the MSCI World Index, which was up 5%, uh, though the FTSE All Share was down about 17% for that year. Share price terms, uh, even worse, unfortunately, down 28% as their discount widened from 10 to 26%, uh, despite the fact they did some buybacks. So the story here, not to be confused with Majedi Asset Management, although they do have a, a stake in Majedi Asset Management, they own about 17% of that particular company. And in fact, Majedi Asset Management are responsible for running uh, the portfolios, the six Majedi run funds or segregated accounts. But the reasons for the underperformance, well, they were probably a little bit overweight at the UK, which certainly didn't help. And also they do have, in the same way, I think we talked about last week about Linzel Train uh, Investment Trust. Majedi Investments has a, a stake in Majedi Asset Management. Um, that represents uh, 21% of the NAV. Uh, but the value of that stake fell in the year from 41 million to 31 million. And that reflected the fact that Majedi Asset Management saw its assets under management fall from about 11 billion to 8 billion. So they will presumably be quite pleased to have picked up that other mandate this year. That might help them a little bit. Which sector are they in or which sector are they going to be in? I think they've changed their sector, have they not? That's right. Yep, they've moved uh, from the global sector to the global equity income sector. Uh, and that's uh, a reflection of the fact that their yield, certainly on a historic basis, is over 5%, 5.2%. So obviously that's quite a, an attractive yield. And in fact, they declared a total dividends of 11.4p in the period, which wasn't an, uh, an uncovered dividend, to be fair. Their uh, revenue per share uh, was uh, down 30% to 9.1p, but they had revenue reserves that they used to bridge the shortfall. So they've become an income trust, effectively an equity income trust, whether by design or virtue of results. How do their shares been trading in this one? I mean, we haven't looked at this one before, I don't think. So how do their shares trade and where do they... Well, we can't compare them anymore to the global sector, but uh, how have their shares been trading relative to their recent history? Yeah, they're, they're on quite a wide discount. Uh, at the moment, they're probably on about 19% discount. Uh, and over the last 12 months, they've averaged 18%. I mean, it's probably off the radar for a lot of investors, I'd suggest. Size-wise, it's about 100, 120 million market cap. The yield is attractive, but in terms of its uh, NAV, total return performance, over the last five years, they're up about 19%. And in the global equity income peer group, for instance, the average is 82%. So they are a long way behind uh, their new peers. OK, so that's one that uh, is obviously hoping for better times ahead. Another one that has, again, changed its manager recently is Securities Trust of Scotland. Uh, they've had some interim results, uh, which are presumably relate to the period when they were still being managed by Martin Curry. So they're probably of more of historic interest at this point, but uh, tell us briefly what those figures were. Yeah, that's right. So they had interim results out to the end of September, the six-month period. They outperformed, actually. NAV total return up about 22% compared with 16% for their peer group. As you say, they were managed by Martin Curry in that period. Um, and with Triasset Management and James Harris appointed with effect from the 12th of November. So they've given us a, a little brief update of where the portfolio is, and the portfolio has been reconstructed. Um, and it's generating a free cash yield of 5.8%. Uh, it was at least at the end of November. So um, with the, the dividend, the guidance on the dividend, it will be not less than 5.5p for the financial year to the end of March next year. 
Right, the free cash flow yield of 5.8%, that's an interesting number. It's one that is often worth asking about if you're looking at an investment trust. It's effectively the amount of surplus cash that the companies in the portfolio are generating. And 5.8%, I mean, that would compare, for example, I just happen to know this because I've been talking to them recently too, about just over 3% for something like the big Fundsmith Equity Fund or the or the Smithson Trust. Uh, so that does reflect the relatively uh, defensive nature of the Troy approach. Interesting to see how this one gets on under its new management. Let's move on to a UK trust that's produced some excellent results, I think. Interim results for the six months to the 31st of October, and that is Artemis Alpha. We did talk about this a few weeks ago. This has been a, uh, a small trust managed by Artemis, obviously, and it's a struggle for a number of years. It was uh, felt rather neglected, I have to say, to some observers, but it's been, uh, they had a bit of a, a remake, a makeover about, uh, when was it, two years ago, and uh, what are the latest results show? As you say, it was a decent set of results, interim results for the six months to the end of October. Uh, in that time, their NEV total return was up 15%, and that compared with a decline of 2% for the FTSE All Share. Uh, share price total return not quite as good, up at 9%. But it's all about the stock picking. It's a relatively concentrated portfolio, only 32 holdings. Um, so the names that perform very well for them in the period, things like Delivery Hero, Nintendo, Hornby, Dignity, Frasers, and Ryanair. So actually quite a high commonality. A lot of those names you'll find in the Aurora Investment Trust uh, portfolio. But it has, uh, as I said, it's a concentrated approach to value investing. Um, they've increased the gearing up as well from 0 to 10%. Uh, and they've got some quite big bets on various sectors, so video games, 14% of the company, food delivery, 11%, uh, and in fact, they're very high exposure to uh, the consumer in general. It's an interesting trust. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did an interview with the young man who's been appointed to be co-manager of this trust, alongside John Dodd, one of the founders of Artemis. He's a gentleman called Kartik Kumar, and he's very young. I mean, he's, I, don't, I think he's barely 30 or something, and uh, so obviously he's a bit more in touch with some of these, uh, if you like, more uh, modern business sectors than perhaps some other uh, fund managers are. But, uh, they've been doing pretty well, haven't they, Artemis Alpha? They gave uh, shareholders a kind of series of promises of, what was it, a couple of years ago or three years ago, I can't remember now, uh, about they were going to try and reduce the discount and so on, which had widened out to quite a large number. And they're uh, making some progress in that, I think, are they not? They're doing quite well in their sector anyway. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's an interesting combination. I mean, and Kartik is an impressive young chap and you know he sits alongside John Dodd who has been around for a, a number of years uh, probably I think fair to say a veteran investment manager so it's it's quite an interesting partnership the performance numbers are starting to they have turned it around they're starting to be quite strong so over the last three years for instance NAV total return of about 26 percent that compares with a rise of the FTSE all share of just two percent and actually probably one percent for their peer group overall so um, as you say they are starting to put some good numbers on the board. Let's move on then to another uh, much bigger trust, which is the Lowland Investment Company. This is one of, if you like, the big old heavyweights of the investment trust sector. What can you tell us about what they've been saying recently? So Lowland had its annual results out to the end of September. A difficult period for Lowland. Uh, NAV total return down 25%, and that compared with a decline of 17% for the benchmark. So that would be the FTSE All Share. So obviously um, been quite impacted by COVID-19 and also gearing uh, really not helping at all. In addition, the dividend income that they received fell 50% in the period, so from 68p to 34p effectively, though they have managed to uh, grow their, their total dividend using revenue reserves uh, yet again. So still geared, gearing was about 13% uh, just a, a week or two ago, 
and you know the, the interesting the way the portfolio has been positioned so um, the managers James Henderson Laura Fall who are I think an impressive uh, management team uh, this year's numbers aside um, they've been effectively looking to to take advantage of some of the valuation opportunities that they've seen they've been buying uh, kind of two main themes of companies so companies well placed to grow their earnings so uh, Hypnosis Songs Fund, we've mentioned, they've, they've invested in that one, and Tesco. But they've also bought into some companies where they believe that the return to normality is not factored in. So uh, examples would include Marks and & Spencers and, and Halford. So it's interesting, actually, we, since the rebound in the market, uh, probably since the early part of November, they've participated in, in full. And actually, despite lag in the all share, they nearly managed to close that gap uh, literally within about a month. They're just over the last week or so, they've, they've widened out again. So year to date, they're, they're down 15% compared with a fall of 10% for the all share. Yes, it's an interesting one. I mean, Janus Henderson or or Henderson, when it was Henderson before, they often have a policy on this, this particular trust. And I think also in uh, Henderson Opportunities Trust, which is managed by the same team, they have a sort of almost permanent gearing. They basically take the view that the their long-term investors should benefit from gearing over time if the equity market goes up. And so their results tend to be a bit more volatile, I think, than the norm. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, there aren't many um, investment trusts that we discussed before which have kind of permanent structural gearing. They use gearing all the time, more or less. Uh, is that right? I think they're very happy. They're very comfortable to use gearing and they take a long-term view on it. And also it's clearly good for the revenue account and therefore the, the dividends. So the yield on Lowland at the moment on a historic basis is uh, over 5 It's 5.2%. And that's got to be attractive. And, um, you know, you get quite a lot of bounce back ability to use that word with Lowland. So as and when we do see UK market recover, then Lowland is one of the names that you'd expect to perform quite well. And, uh, you know, the rating of 4% discount, um, it has tightened in uh, over the last few months. That compares with an 8% discount over the last 12 months. Yes, it's a very competitive sector, as we know, the UK equity income sector. And there have been a lot of changes this year in that sector. But their yield, as you say, is certainly amongst the higher in that particular group. So we can move on to another one we haven't talked about at all, I don't think, which is Oryx International Growth. Had some interim results. Tell us about Oryx International Growth. What are they and uh, what have they achieved? So Oryx International Growth invest in medium and small cap companies in the UK and the US, though it's predominantly in the UK at the moment, it's fair to say. And in fact, it sits in the UK small cap sector. They had their interim results out for the six months to the end of September. Again, decent set of results. NAV total return in that six month period, they were up about 39% in share price terms up 52%. Um, so it's run by a gentleman called Christopher Mills uh, of Harewood Capital. And he is very much a, a stock picker, a stock selector. Um, and he made the point uh, in the results that only two companies in the portfolio, and it is quite a um, diverse portfolio, lots of names in there. Only two companies actually required cash funding due to COVID. Um, the best performer was a company called EKF Diagnostics, which was up 136% in that six-month period. Uh, but they do have some unquoted as well. One of those, a company called Tradewise, was written down in the period, but equally another source, Bioscience, actually went public during the period. So uh, Christopher Mills, he also runs uh, North American Smaller Companies Investment Trust. Uh, been around for many, many years. I think he would almost be in the veteran category as well now. But how does Oryx sit in its uh, in its sector? It's obviously a bit of a hybrid beast. So how does it relate to other companies in the uh, in that sector? In size terms, it's it's a decent size, though. As I say, it's probably one of the more specialist funds. And North Atlantic Smaller Companies does have a stake in Oryx International Growth. 
but in terms of its performance, NAV total return of about 93% over the last five years, uh, which is a considerable outperformance of not just the UK small cap marketplace, but actually most of the investment trusts that uh, are invested in that area. So very few would have numbers that strong. Probably the exception to that would be BlackRock Throgmorton Trust that we discussed before, and that's up 98% over that five-year period. But after that, Oryx International Growth would be right up there. But it's benefited from having some international exposure as well, obviously, which has been helpful, I'm sure. Let's move on to some specialist overseas trusts now. Let's start with uh, one which has produced its annual results, and that is Henderson European Focus, HEFT. We've certainly talked about them before. They're obviously in the European sector. How are their results looking? They had their annual results for the year to the end of September, and a total return of about 6% in that time, and that compared with just a 0.4% positive return for the FTSE World Europe XUK index. Share price terms, not quite as good, but still up 4%. So just to remind people, this investment trust is run by a chap called John Bennett, for the last few years, it's been run on a, on a pretty concentrated uh, basis, so between 35 and 45 holdings. John would describe himself as kind of style agnostic, but he's very uh, attracted or he has a bias to companies with sound balance sheets and solid cash flows. So he's quite a, an old style uh, investor. And in fact, if you do have five minutes or so, his investment manager report for the, this annual results is probably one worth reading. He talks about the investment DNA of an active manager he talks about the six lessons and how investors have to be ready to be wrong and so on and so forth. But it's interesting also what he's done with the portfolio. Um, they've tilted it this year, um, particularly after the market sell-off, to more cyclical and value names. And that will have benefited them, obviously, in the recent rally. And he also talks about how ESG has emerged as a key theme. And he recognises how companies that do uh, kind of meet ESG criteria are more highly valued. So what he's looking to do is to back those companies, not those that necessarily tick all the boxes today, but have the potential to improve how they're viewed on an ESG basis. So he talks about you know, cement manufacturer Laforge, Holcim and UPM, Kimini and Signify uh, as names that he's trying to play that theme through. Let's move on and talk about one of the hottest sectors of the year. We've talked about a couple of those already, but let's talk about JP Morgan China Growth and Income. This is one of the three big China uh, investment trusts out there. They've had their annual results out as well. Uh, and their results, I, I guess, have been pretty good. They have indeed. Yep. They had their annual results out to the end of September. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 66%. And that compared with 27% for their benchmark, the MSCI China index. In share price terms, it's even stronger, actually up 83% over that 12 month period. So obviously, a lot of things went right for them in the year. The fact that they had some uh, good stock selection in IT, healthcare and consumer, uh, that worked in their favour, uh, though they made the point they had an underweight position in Alibaba, which tends to, it's a very big index weight, so a lot of people do, and a lack of exposure to JD.com detracted from performance. But they were geared, they, they gearing averaged about 10% over the year, which was obviously very, very positive. And I think all things considered, the, the, the focus that they've had now for a number of years on what they call New China so this idea of um, you know technology companies or, or companies with high growth uh, potential and also getting involved in the, the China A-share market. JP Morgan is a house of a lot of resource actually on the ground. And all these things have uh, really uh, worked in their, in their benefit this year. Well, we can compare and contrast, if you like, with the next company, which is Fidelity China's Special Situations, which is the biggest trust in this particular 
sector, or at least in this particular area, I should say, uh, they've only produced some interim results, though, to the 30th of September, so they're not directly comparable. But uh, let's see how they did in relative terms, at least against that same uh, MSCI China index. So in the six months to the end of September, their NAV total return was up 52%, uh, and that represented an outperformance as well. The MSCI China index was up 24%. Uh, and again, they did well. A number of stocks performed well from them. Consumer-related stocks uh, were particularly strong. Again, not having uh, JD.com detracted, that was obviously a strong performer. But an interesting aspect of Fidelity China, and actually one that differentiates it from the JP Morgan Fund, is that they have some unquoted holdings in the portfolio. Many years ago, they backed uh, Alibaba before it came to the marketplace, and, and that served it well. At the moment, they've got five unlisted holdings, which represents about 5% of gross assets, and actually they added another name to the portfolio not long after the period end. Uh, one thing to note with Fidelity China, it is geared, they've got gross gearing up to about 29% on a net basis. It'd be slightly lower than that, but still north of 20%. So that is a differentiator again, that level of gearing. And we know that they will shortly be joined by uh, the new kids on the block. Well, not so new kids, but uh, Bailey Gifford taking over the China uh, into what's going to become the Bailey Gifford China Growth Fund, and they'll be hot on their tails. We talked about this before, but how do these three trusts compare in terms of performance over the last uh, one, five and ten years? Obviously, the Bailey Gifford China Growth Fund uh, was called Pacific Horizon and therefore is no more. So uh, presumably they'll be happy to do better than that. But how do those three stack up? Yeah, the JP Morgan Fund has the, the strongest performance record over five years. It's up 251% uh, NAV total return over that five year period. And that compares with 126% for the MSCI China. Uh, Fidelity China has also outperformed the index. It's up 159%. Uh, so both of those uh, investment trusts have generated some good outperformance over that period. I mean, as you say, it's very early days for the, the Bailey Gifford Fund. All right, so that's good. China has uh, been a good competitive ground there. So let's move on to uh, Atlantis Japan growth, which has been uh, struggling in recent years, but they've produced some interim results. Have there been any improvement there? Yes, I think is the is the short answer. And the interim results for the six months to the end of October, they generated an NAV total return of 27%. And that compares with 7% for the benchmark. Um, so this is a Japanese small cap fund. It's all very much about the, the names, uh, the, the, the stock selection. And it's obviously worked for them in this period. Uh, a little while ago, they adopted an enhanced dividend policy in order to attract new shareholders and thereby narrow the discount. Um, I think that's worked to, to an extent. I mean, they're trading on a discount of 8% at the moment, and that compares with a 15% average discount uh, over the previous 12 months. And so moving on in the same area, we can come to JP Morgan Japan or JP Morgan Japanese, uh, JFJ. They've had some annual results out, and uh, they, of course, are one of the big players in this sector. That's right. Yeah, they had their annual results out to the end of September. And again, another decent set of results. Their NAV total return was up 35% and that compared with their benchmark, the topics, uh, which was up 2%. Uh, in share price terms, it's even better. It was up 42% as the discount narrowed in from uh, 11% to 7%. And actually, subsequently, it's tightened further. It's probably trading on about a 2% discount at the moment. So the manager attributed the, the outperformance certainly to the resilience during the pandemic because of the, the team's focus on quality companies. Um, and also they benefited from being overweight services and information and communication sectors. Gearing averaged about 14% over the year, uh, which also proved positive. 
So we move on to property, and this week there aren't that many property results. We've had an awful lot come through, or NAV announcements or results coming through in the last few weeks. But the only one we've noted down this week is Schroeder European Real Estate Investment Trust, S-E-R-E, and that's produced some annual results. That's right. It had its annual results out to the end of September. Uh, the NAV per share was up about 11% during that period. And in fact, the NAV total returns are taking into account the dividends that it's generated. So that was up 16%. So the portfolio performed quite well. Um, there was an 11% uplift to its valuation. Uh, and really the story here, and I think this is one that we talked about before, was the fact that they've exchanged contracts on the forward funding sale of an asset in France in Paris, to be more precise, an office asset, and that's delivered a pre-tax profit of 28 million euros. They're also not doing too badly on the rent collection front. They've collected about 87% during the year, um, and I suspect there are property investment companies who have done a lot worse than that. Their earnings per share were actually down, probably not too surprisingly, from 7.9 euros to 6.4, but uh, in terms of the total dividends, uh, they did take a, a dividend cut but the total dividends for the year was 5.7 euros. Um, and that, again, was down from 7.4. Now we can talk about a couple of specialist trusts. Let's start with one of the uh, historically well-known investment trusts, or at least linked to an historically well-known investment trust, Electra Private Equity, as it's now known, ELTA. They've had some annual results. We haven't talked much about private equity in the last uh, few weeks as it happens. What's been their story? Yep, so Electra Private Equity had its annual results up to the, again, to the end of September. A pretty tough year for Electra. The NAV was down 36%. And that really reflected, uh, as you mentioned, Electra is a bit of a shadow of its former self. Three companies or three investments now really provide the bulk of the portfolio. It's in, it's in managed wind down. Uh, TGI Friday, I'm sure people are familiar with the American themed restaurant. That represents about 79% of its NAV at the moment. And a company called uh, Hotter Shoes is 4% in Sentinel, which is a UK manufacturer, provides um, kind of residential heating and hot water systems. That represents about 8%. So they did see some valuation write-downs uh, in the period. Unsurprisingly, they were hit by COVID-19, though the chairman claims that each business is now adequately funded and that Electra is on target to realise its remaining investments by the end of 2021. Yes, the timing probably hasn't been very helpful to them, has it, indeed? And TGI Friday wouldn't strike one as the kind of business you want particularly to be supporting at this particular time, but you never know, it might come storming back if we ever do get past the uh, the pandemic. Let's move on to talk about uh, Henderson Diversified Income. Interim results, six months to the 31st of October. So it had its interim results out for the six months to the end of October, as you mentioned, and an NAV total return of 8% during that time. And that compares with its benchmark that was up 1%. Uh, in share price terms, even better, up 9%. And they've declared two dividends of 1.1p. One for maybe the investment trust Anorax out there, but they're looking to change their benchmark. And actually, it's a reflection of the fact that it's, it's quite a wide uh, mandate. So this um, investment trust invests in secured loans, government bonds, high-yield corporate, asset-backed securities. And John Petullo and Gemma Barnard, very experienced investors, and look to kind of go to where the opportunity is. So they're trying to find a benchmark or a hybrid benchmark that reflects what they do. Yes, that's often the case. I mean, the general debt uh, subsectors, there are several of them. Uh, they've been a big growth area in recent years, but they have all uh, had different experiences during the uh, pandemic crisis. And some of them have suffered quite a lot. 
others are done a little bit better, but it's very difficult to uh, contrast and compare. It's very much one for the specialists in these particular sectors, in my view. Take a lot of hard grind to find, and if, if the managers can't yet find the right benchmark, then obviously it's uh, just as hard for the analysts, I guess, who are following them. Uh, let's talk about something which is a bit more understandable, and that is uh, Polar Capital Technology, uh, which has produced some half-year results as well. We know they've done very well this year, but uh, tell us what the results are showing in the latest period. So for the six months to the end of October, they generated an NAV total return of 28%, and that compared with 24% for the benchmark. So they outperformed, and that reflects strong stock selection across all regions and, and market cap tiers, really, uh, despite the fact they were holding a bit of cash. And also they had some uh, puts on the NASDAQ as well. So the strongest pawns came from internet and software subsectors. And actually, the manager, Ben Rogoff, who's a very interesting manager, very always worth hearing what he has to say, uh, he's been reducing exposure to some of the, the kind of greatest stay-at-home beneficiaries uh, of this year, although he remains a kind of high conviction in the new normal thesis. Uh, and in the uh, investment manager's statement, he talks about how you know he recognises that uh, technology stocks are more expensive, but points out that actually they have got stronger balance sheets than possibly the wider marketplace. So therefore, um, the valuations are, are, can be justified. Yes, I can endorse what you say about reading uh, what uh, Ben Rogoff has to say. He puts a lot of effort into his annual report in particular, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there which helping to explain what some of these developments in technology are and are likely to be over the coming years. So they're, they're very educational, and that's good. Now, if you're interested in the technology, you're maybe a little late to the party. We don't know how that's going to play out. But uh, these shares are now trading on a discount, I think. They are indeed. Yeah, they've um, been derated a little bit. So they're on about a 5% discount. Uh, and that compares with an average over the previous 12 months of uh, 2%. So I wouldn't say it's a massive derating, though they've certainly softened a little bit recently, possibly reflecting the fact that it has been a very strong period for technology and for growth companies in, in general. And maybe there's a little bit of rotation, people happy to take profits. But for others, that will provide a bit of a, an, an interesting entry point. Because the other big trust in the sector is Allianz Technology, and they're they're still trading around par, are they? I think that's right. Yeah, they're probably on about a one percent premium uh, at the moment, and, and again, they've probably averaged uh, around NAV over the previous twelve months. As I think I mentioned before, I've also did an interview with Walter Price, who's the the lead manager of Allianz Technology in the handbook that came out this week, and uh, he's got a lot of interesting things to say about the sector, which obviously has been very, very strong. And a lot of people have been saying for years that it uh, can't go on this way. But so far, they have been proved wrong. Let's talk finally about a couple of specialists. Uh, we're back in the renewable energy and infrastructure space. You've had some results. Let's start with SDCL Energy Efficiency Income. So that investment company had its interim results out to the end of September. And they've had a return of about 5% or so. Not a huge amount of movement on the NEV front, but they've paid or declared two uh, quarterly dividends, and which were covered by cash 1.4 times. And they've reaffirmed their full year target dividend of 5.5p. So gearing is currently about 25% uh, of net assets. Uh, and they made some comments in terms of how they've been performing, that their operational assets have been substantially in line with expectations the impact to date from the pandemic on the value of the portfolio has not been material, although there are some kind of short-term impacts on operational and financial performance. And then finally, we can look at Sequoia Economic Infrastructure, SEQI, also had some half-yearly results for the same period. How have they compared? 
So for that six months to the end of September, their NAV total return was up about 7%. And again, they paid their dividends 3.125p, uh, and that was up year on year. So they basically benefited in terms of their NAV from an increase from uh, positive market movements as economic activity resumed. And just to remind people, this particular investment company is invested in economic infrastructure debt. So it's private debt and, and bond investments. The full year dividend target remains 6.25p and the chairman expects that to be fully covered by cash. And they made the point that they've increased their allocation to defensive sectors up to about 45%. Good. Well, that wraps up the results from this week. I think it might be worth just mentioning at the end here. I saw that the AIC, the Association of Investment Companies, put out a a release talking about the best performing sectors this year from the 1st of January to the 30th of November. That's 11 months, obviously been quite a a turbulent 11 months. And as we've discussed, we've uh, discussed the performance of the Investment Trust Index, the Equity Investment Instruments Index, uh, and the overall weighted average performance from Investment Trust this year, according to the AOC, has been 8.4%. But some of the interesting stories about the sector has done well. If we could all invest with the uh, the rearview mirror, obviously at the start of this year, we would have invested in uh, the best performing sector was hedge funds. And then we had technology and media global as we've heard, a lot of Bailey Gifford funds, Japan, Japanese smaller companies, and so on. But it is really fair to say, it is worth pointing out that there has been an extraordinary polarisation this year in performance, I think. And uh, you can read what Simon thinks about the year ahead in the Investment Trust Handbook. He has uh, his thoughts about what's going to happen next year. And we'll probably come back to that uh, at the end of the year when we talk about what's going to happen in 2021. Uh, I've got absolutely no idea what's going to happen in 2021, but uh, some of us are paid to uh, have views about the future. Uh, we're interesting to see. But I mean, can you remember a year when there have been such polarised performance uh, across the sectors, Simon, is in your recent memory? Um, it's a very good question. Nothing springs to mind. I mean, it has just been an incredible year, a very busy year and quite a roller coaster, frankly. Um, I mean, it's been good to see um, some of the kind of more value orientated investors have a moment in the sun over the last uh, month or so on the news of the vaccine and also to see the UK market come back because it has been a very, very tough year for UK value investors in particular. But um, clearly it has been overall a year for growth, healthcare, technology. And if you'd put all your money on black uh, and invested with Bailey Gifford at the start of the year, you're probably feeling quite smug around about now. You certainly would be. Yes, they've, uh, they're dominating the top 10 and the top 15 this year. No question about that. I should just perhaps mention, apropos those figures, the AC, it is worth bearing in mind, these are weighted averages, and uh, that can give quite a misleading picture because, uh, well, perhaps you can explain what a weighted average is, uh, Simon, but I mean, in the hedge fund sector, for example, uh, that performance is almost entirely due to a single investment trust. So just tell us how the AIC goes about calculating an overall uh, weighted average for each sector. Yeah, so when you look at the performance of a subsector, you'll weight it as per the market caps of each individual constituent. So if you do have a subsector where there might not be many investment companies, but there's one very large one. And I think you're talking about Persian Square Holdings in the, in the hedge fund space um, that's performed particularly well, then that can skew it. So you can find literally one investment company has done very, very well. But as a result of that, it looks like the subsector overall has, has done fantastically, where you know the reality is that all the other constituents of that subsector might have struggled a bit. Indeed. Well, we'll look forward to next year. I hope it won't be quite as exciting as this year in one sense, because uh, it has been a very dramatic year. Uh, We will be back next week for another podcast. I think we might be then taking a break over the Christmas period. But thank you, everybody who has listened to the podcast since we started it. Very happy with the the number of listeners we're now having. And uh, given that we started in the dark days of March and April, 
it's been very encouraging to see that the year has ended so well. So thank you, Simon, for your uh, your time in all this. And uh, we'll look forward to having a, a kind of end of year pre-Christmas discussion next week. And after that, we might uh, put our feet up for a week or so. So thank you uh, for your time again. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.